When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Welcome to The Bigger Picture, where my guest today is Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, where are we going to begin today? Um, the first thing we're going to do is um, explore a paper um, that has been written uh, and, and initially presented uh, uh, by John Penrose MP in um, in the Daily Telegraph. Um, he's written a paper um, uh, called Poverty Trapped. Um, and I've actually been sent a copy. Um, John Penrose is one of those members of parliament who's actually a very good friend of Middlesex University and, and I looked at the paper and it, it's really interesting. John is a, a former Conservative Minister, been a Minister of State for example in Northern Ireland. Um, um, I think he's one of the, I think he's the government's anti-corruption czar, uh, but he, he's a very bright guy. He, um, he's got an MBA in the United States from Columbia. Um, he's uh, been in business before entering politics, which is always refreshing. Um, and and he was a graduate in law from Cambridge University. And I think that, that he's written this paper um, trying to explore innovative ways in which we can sort of re-examine poverty. And of course, the first thing he does is to sort, sort of slightly explode the, the fixed quantity of wealth fallacy, this idea that when we think about poverty, we should be thinking, you know, in terms of um, um, the average person um, having being in poverty if they don't have, I don't know, um, more than sixty percent or whatever it is um, of, of 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 the wealth of of of. of because he, he points out, doesn't he, that, that, that I mean, there is no way of getting rid of poverty if it's always going to be a proportion of something like median income. And he pointed out even the Scandinavians, you know, you, you just can't get rid of it if there's always going to be, um, you know, a proportion of the population that, that will be defined by that. Exactly. You know, and and um, what you've actually got to do is 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 look at, you know, what people need in terms of housing and education and heating and, and all the incentives to get on in life, and, and, uh, but not, you know, I mean, you know, I could double m my salary next year, but if, if you know, in comparison to Bill Gates or, or, or a billionaire, yes, I remain in extreme poverty, mm. but that, and that's not particularly helpful. And, and I've, I've always thought that, you know, as someone who, who has three degrees in sociology. Um, so, uh, what, but what he does, he goes through all kinds of areas where, uh, without huge upheavals, uh, we can make sort of important uh, incremental changes to what you might call, it's, it's the political phrase, isn't it, of the year, levelling up. So he talks about, for example, 
uh, in housing, about how we should be building up more, uh, not necessarily uh, building out. Um, uh, all kinds of incentives to make builders build. Um, he, he talks about, and I think it's very important, comparable university degrees. Why is it uh, that um, a, a degree from one university in the eyes of employers should be so much more valuable, uh, have so much more cachet, higher status, whatever, than one from a different um, uh, university. Uh, with the honours system, my goodness, haven't we uh, in recent years under both this government and the previous Labour government had all manner of scandals around the honours system. He talks about introducing uh, a much more uh, transparent and open points-based system. Um, yes, you want people who have done extraordinary things, who have remarkable talents in different ways of life, um, you know, whether they're scientists or entrepreneurs or whatever, but why can't you have a points-based system uh, and then open it up and people who are the most extraordinary high achievers of all in their various fields, you know, they can then win the knighthoods or, 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 or be made a dame or, or even enter um, uh, the House of Peers. Um, he talks about opening up all kinds of interesting supply-side reforms concerning childcare, issues of taxation. He talks even, and this is, this is really interesting and radical for a, for a Conservative Member of Parliament about pupil power, uh, about uh, education, about equipping people and schools with the right skills. Um, um, a universal accreditation system, again, you know, irrespective of the school you're in or the qualification, but just right across the board. Now, this is a this is a uh, a long paper, but it's not an arduous read at all, um, and it is, you know, brimming over with really really interesting ideas. And I have to say, they're ideas that, yes, although they're rooted um, in market economics and and sort of um, micro incremental incentives, um, they're actually the sort of ideas that are so good. Um, I think they're up for grabs by all kinds of politicians. Um, you could imagine uh, people like Tony Blair, you know, and, and sort of the moderate and potentially electable wing of the Labour Party wanting to capture all these. So it's a really good effort. And I cannot remember the last time I saw uh, a Conservative or indeed Labour or Liberal backbencher come up with such a wide ranging package of interesting ideas. We even talked about, you know, inheritance tax and about reforming gifting uh, to spread into generational wealth uh, down the down you know down the age range, uh, but do it sensibly over time, avoiding some of the moral hazards uh, of trustafarianism, um, um, and also lots of ideas on you know fixing the causes of poverty and ill health. Uh, so I really like it. I recommend it. It, it. This is a little bit like doing a film review, Simon. You don't want to give, you know, the punchline away or the conclusions, but you want a bit of a teaser. It's a really good read. How do people get hold of a paper like this that they want to read? I mean, I've read a digest. Um, um, uh, he, John Penrose, actually wrote a sort of summary of that, I suppose, in the Telegraph, which you pointed me to. So I haven't read the whole paper. Um, is it easy getting hold of papers well, I, like this? I think... I believe it is going to be published by one of the think tanks uh, in the near future. So 
watch out for it. Um, I think, and I think that sort of as an agenda, I think you're going to read quite a lot of it over the months ahead. I liken it to something that the Adam Smith Institute did um, way back at the end of the 70s. They produced a series of reports then called the Omega Report, and they did an Omega Report on defence, an Omega Report on housing, an Omega Report on um, industry, you know, on railways or whatever. If you go back to those Omega Reports, um, then an awful lot of the agenda, a lot of the things that were contained within those reports is what um, government started to enact over the following uh, 5, 10 or indeed 15 years. And I think that when John gets this paper out live and goes beyond simply uh, putting you know, some of the ideas out there in, in, in newspapers like The Telegraph, I think what he's actually done uh, is produce a digest. It's almost a body of knowledge um, that will hopefully be published in, in one place. You know, I'm hoping one of the think tanks in the days ahead publishes it, or um, it's something that may be sort of cut up, maybe segmented um, and published by a variety. I could imagine, for example, the tax elements being published by the Centre for Policy Studies um, or the Taxpayers Alliance. I could imagine uh, some of the issues around welfare uh, and education maybe being published by Civitas or the IEA. But the point is, I think that it's a really interesting, high quality piece of work. And it is something uh, that anyone who's serious about being elected and forming a government, be that Labour or Tory, there's an awful lot in, 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 in his body of knowledge that people can rifle through. It really is brimming with lots of ideas. So uh, one hopes, one hopes so. You sort of feel that there, might, there may be resistance among many people who just have trouble coping with the well, essentially the massive sea change in how you think about it, because he's talking about stopping treating poverty symptoms and let's concentrate on the actual causes. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's uh, John Penrose. And uh, I guess it's time for us to turn to uh, another topic. I was just doing the title. It's called Poverty Trapped, isn't it? Um, so keep an eye out for that. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, our, our second topic today, please. I think our second topic has got to be uh, the interview that was broadcast uh, very recently by GB News, this new uh, 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 television news channel. Um, this interview by Nigel Farage, um, this interview with Donald Trump. Um, uh, I've watched it. Uh, it. It's an interesting interview. Um, it, it's strange uh, after this time to see uh, uh, Donald Trump again. Um, and, you know, it covers a lot of interesting ground. Uh, in the interview, Donald Trump is still arguing that he increased the number of his voters, um, that the US election was rigged, um, that postal votes um, are in some way incompatible uh, with democracy, that they, they're, they're rife for um, uh, ballot rigging. Um, he argues still that what happened in the United States uh, on the 6th of January, it was not an insurrection. 
that it was a protest. Um, he argues that that he was making United States energy independent, um, but that now Biden is reversing that, and that there's an extraordinary statistic. He said that um, that fuel in the U.S. under him was one eighty seven dollars and cents um, uh, uh, a unit, but that in California it's now going up to seven fifty, and he says that inflation. Uh, is at its highest in 40 years, and it's going to get worse. He has a lot to say about Boris Johnson. He talks about climate change. He does not like net zero. Uh, he does not like Boris Johnson or, or the British Tory government's um, support of, for example, uh, wind energy and wind turbines, wind farms. He, he says they're ugly. He talks a lot about the royal family. He is a, a clearly a staunch advocate of Her Majesty the Queen, but he does not like Meghan Markle. Um, it's a peculiar interview. My biggest takeaway um, is that Nigel Farage was almost um, uh, spoon-feeding him questions and trying to keep Trump focused and sort of on the straight and narrow. It's one of those really odd interviews where in the way that Nigel Farage was forming his questions, he was almost trying to prevent Trump from either straying off the point or quite frankly, embarrassing himself. So I was unimpressed by it. Um, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. I think he is um, uh, a, a, a bizarre character um, and I'm not sure he's fit to be for very high, this, the sort of high office that uh, he has uh, held or perhaps wants to be in again at some point. But um, yes, it was just odd. It, it was almost as if Trump throughout the interview had some sort of ADHD, but that Nigel Farage was desperate um, in feeding him ideas and quotes and questions that would sort of nurture him through the process of, of this interview. But Apparently, uh, the interview did well. The ratings uh, were very high for GB News. So I think from a marketing perspective, um, uh, apparently it, it got a lot more viewers than Sky News um, did at the time, or indeed even BBC News Channel. I saw one review that said it couldn't have been any cuddier if Farage had arrived dressed as a teddy bear. Um, the, the problem one has with Trump, of course, is that occasionally he says things that you agree with, but it almost makes you want to take the opposite view. Um, so when he does come out with something that seems sensible, but you know, it, it perhaps it's hard hard to sway people because he, you know, uh, certainly amongst those people who are not necessarily his natural electorate, he does seem to rub people up the wrong way. Yeah, and, and, and you know, he is interesting in that. Uh, I mean, there are some issues. I think to be fair to Trump, where he has been well prophetic. Um, uh, to be fair to him. He was probably the first Western leader to stridently call uh, China out um, on its plans, its intentions, and its uh, illiberal forms of governance. Um, and my goodness, you know, he was right to do so. When you look at the abuses in Hong Kong of the Uyghur people, mm -hmm. um, 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 of threats with bombers flying over Taiwan, you know, Trump was up there. Again, the evidence suggests that Trump is pro the market economy. Uh, he reduced taxes and he certainly got the US economy motoring. But, 
Goy, didn't he, handle um, uh, the, you know, the earlier stages of coronavirus in, a, in a, I have to say, a fairly crass way, in a counterproductive way. Um, and, and you're right, I mean, Farage could not have been any cuddlier. And I thought from that point of view, it was a wasted opportunity because if it is true that Farage and Trump get on really well, um, well, friends tell you what they really think. And I don't believe for a second that Farage wouldn't have some really tough and robust questions mm. uh, for Trump. And, and in them being tough and robust, you know, hopefully they would help Trump to reflect and to think. But no, uh, my impression is that Farage and Trump get on well because Farage doesn't pose the really tough questions to Trump. It doesn't really challenge him. Um, and it comes over, I think, as too sycophantic. And the thing I ultimately dislike um, is this idea um, that somehow you're with Kamala Harris and Biden and the left, or you're with Donald Trump. And it's almost like the sort of choice, the stark choice many people, I think, thought they were being presented in the late 1920s and 30s. You know, either you're going to go with... Um, uh, a strong person of the right or a strong person of the left, i.e. fascism or communism. Yes. And no, I think those are the moments where principled and liberal people have to stand up and, and don't be pulled by these extremes, don't become bipartisan, um, and don't fall for the shenanigans uh, mm. you know, on the US left of the Bernie Sanders um, or, or on the right, um, the Donald Trumps. Because in there, I think, lurks yeah strong people in inverted commas mm. with potential tyranny yes. and individualism. Did, did he indicate whether he was going to stand again yeah you you <laughs> well of course being trump he didn't answer it directly it was <laughs> right. all about um you know wooing and teasing it was almost as if it was uh, tweeting <laughs> but by prolonged interview so right. there were lots of teasers and and there were sort of hints and suggestions that that um, that that he was being called by his country, that his country needed him. It wasn't that he wanted to do the job or be the president again, but but Biden was such a catastrophe in America, mm. such a bad state that 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 you know maybe my country needs me. I mean, what would you do? That was the sort of language and the way he was framing it. Um, but. Uh, um, uh, I, I I don't know. I could imagine it going either way. Either um, Trump will say, you know what, uh, Biden's done too, too much damage. I'm going to gracefully stand aside. It's time for younger people to come along. Or, um, or uh, he will say, well, I've told you before, and I told that Nigel Farage back in 2021, I'm going to stand. But did he give a clear answer? No. I was intrigued in reading about this that uh, news broadcasters in the states have sort of had cause to rue Trump disappearing because apparently since he's gone their ratings have slumped. Far fewer people are watching news outlets. But what about GB News, which had a very troubled start? Obviously, um, getting an interview like this and getting Nigel Farage is going to help a little. I saw that they um, they recently parked one of those advertising vans outside Broadcasting House. Um, with the billboard saying, we ask the questions you'd ask, BBC News doesn't, which is a little cheeky. But it's not really yet posing any problems for Sky News or BBC News, is it, GB News? Uh, no, I don't think it is. But um, uh, I think it is fair to say that GB News does ask questions. 
that lots of people want are asked and that for whatever reason uh sky but particularly the bbc no longer have the breadth um uh or depth in lots of their um current affairs programs to answer it you know uh i think the bbc has gone deeply um consensual and middle of the road um i understand that because they're the national carrier i mean it's a bit like you know the bbc went fairly anti-communist during the cold war and mm. very very anti-nazi during the second world war um um and and the danger there is of course that um uh that in this world of we're, we're no longer in a world of broadcasting we're in a world where in a, in a sense we can all uh, create her own vlogs, blogs, Twitter feeds, um, YouTube channels. Uh, we live in a world of millions to millions channels communications. Um, I mean, we as individuals can can uh, communicate in ways that, for example, uh, monarchs or presidents prior to the Second World War could not have dreamed of. Mm. And this is a terrain, I think, that will be exploited by um, uh, uh, people like Donald Trump. And I, I have to say, I come from a tradition where I'm wary of banning people. Uh, it's absolutely within the right of Facebook or Twitter as private companies. I think they want to ban people, that's up to them. But I think it's risky because I think often history shows you that, that when there is uh, uh, a section of the community who, for example, favour Donald Trump or want his views to be aired, if you send them underground, they will fester and, and often they can come back and bite you in unexpected ways. I'm reminded for many years, you know, uh, um, for example, BBC News, uh, uh, no, it was a question time, uh, avoided ever having someone on from the BNP and there are legitimate reasons for, for, mm. for following that. But Boy, was it fun when the leader of the BNP uh, went on to question time and quite frankly, crashed and burned. It was just utterly humiliated because once the audience and question, as soon as questions could be put to them, of course, their platform, their program completely collapsed. And it, and it was, you know, it was, it was a hilariously um, um, uh, ludicrous performance. Um, by by the BNP's leader. So, you know, I, I tend to be of the view that where you have these characters um actually want to bring them out into uh the full glare of daylight and you want to cross-examine them and the tragedy with the, the the trump interview was that that's not what nigel farage did nigel farage spoon-fed donald trump what would be much more interesting is to have someone with a very different view to trump someone like uh a john snow or even uh, uh, you know, um, let's be clear, a libertarian from the centre-right criticised Donald Trump, but come at him from a very different but very robust uh, direction. And then let's see how Trump really reacts. Can he operate under fire and under close scrutiny? OK, Tim, thank you. Um, let us switch topics. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Chair Radio. I'm Simon Rose in conversation with Tim Evans, a professor at Middlesex University in London. Um, Tim, our, our final topic, please. So um, 
There is this ongoing debate. It's been around my entire life, um, particularly in the United States, about um, uh, abortion rights. And of course, there was the landmark uh, ruling by the Supreme Court in January, I think it was 1973, in this case, Roe versus Wade, where effectively um, um, uh, the the idea of a, of, a, of, a, of a woman having the right to choose and having a right to um, uh, legal abortion was was endorsed. Now, um, the Supreme Court, which is, again, very much more uh, conservative in its leanings, has indicated um, that, uh, that Roe versus Wade may in, indeed be overturned uh, by... Um, by a legal process that's unaware under underway. The technicalities are it's it's technically it's Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Jackson Women's Health Organization is um uh, is 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 an organization in Mississippi which is I think technically the last holding out uh there to give um uh, women uh, those choices. Um, of course, the, the the problem with the entire abortion issue, and I'm going to confess my bias. I am generally on the side of uh, of women's right to choose. Okay, so I think it's important if an academic does have a, a personal bias that it should be confessed, and I've done so. But of course, <laughs> the, the reality is that that the whole problem here is one of it's a sort of a problem of political and moral philosophy because you know on the one side you have people who argue that uh the unborn child is an individual and it has the inalienable right to life which is a perfectly respectable um line and then you have other people say who know that uh, the unborn fetus is in a set in a sense the property of the woman and it is the woman's right to decide um Albeit up to a, a you know a a, a communally agreed um, 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 uh, age limit, um, uh, that's the tension here, and it strikes me the the reason the issue strikes me as 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 as, as fascinating is because it's one that is fairly timeless. You know, it, it is one that goes through the ages um, and cuts. You know, it straddles both philosophical issues but also theological issues. And um, and how we attend to it is deeply problematic. And it's problematic because it gets to the heart of the conundrums um, that I think are at the core of the human condition. It's all very well if, for example, you are on one side or the other to adhere to your principles, but all those principles get to a point where they get pretty fuzzy, you know, pretty messy, pretty blurred, pretty opaque. Um, um, and 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 I think because it's an issue of the human condition, people again become prone to trying to default to the extremes. So you have the sort of absolutist views that the unborn child has absolutely the right to life, which is you know very much um, very much an orthodox Catholic, traditionally you know for example Christian perspective shared in other religious belief systems as well and then you've got the others who say no absolutely it's the woman's right to to choose and and i think some of those people would indeed um up the term limits from 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 those who really agreed 
um, for example, 28, uh, 24 weeks. Uh, um, uh, but do I think that this is easy to reconcile through the normal channels of discourse or public policy? No, I don't. I think there are lots of issues, public policy, you know, that are not riven with problems of the human condition. Do we build a railway line? Do we put a runway here? Do we put more money into doctors and nurses? You know, these are less messy. Um, uh, they're, they're easier questions to answer. But it's always those messier, more problematic, more theologically and philosophically challenging questions um, that, that, that are not only so difficult to resolve, almost impossible in some sense to, to, to always answer in a clear cut way, but often they're the questions that cut across politics. So you can have someone, you know, in might be a, a member of the Labour Party, or you might have someone who's in the Conservative Party, but then you get the second order effects, you know, are they, uh, um, uh, for example, from that traditional Catholic perspective, or are they, you know, very, very pro-choice uh, and women's rights? And what's so interesting in politics is often those deeply embedded second order issues that are so philosophically and theologically difficult to answer that often um, have such an impact and, and make party politics or tribal politics so unpredictable. Uh, you talked earlier when discussing um, the Trump and Farage interview about the, the divisiveness of, of, of Trump in American politics. And while clearly you know, there's much disagreement here about, uh, about abortion, uh, in America, it seems that, again, it, it's, it's the two sides are much more aggressive and argumentative than perhaps here. I just wondered why America seems so riven when it comes to the big issues. I think the crass answer, but I think there is something in it. Um, the simple answer is you have to think um, about the nature of the people who set sail, not least from our shores, mm. you know, um, uh, uh, for example, on the Mayflower, the sort of the people who set sail and the beliefs that they held um, and how they resonate and echo through the ages in the United States. You know, when you think of a lot of people uh, who left from England, uh, who left from Sweden, who left from Germany uh, to create the United States, these were people who were often in those countries fairly radical religious minorities themselves and when you then think of subsequent populations that there for example huge numbers of irish catholics italians uh people from uh well people from um eastern europe particularly jewish minorities who at the later stages of the 19th early 20th century for, for many different reasons went to the united states the point is that, that yes america is a great melting pot and in many ways um, it has the veneer, like Britain, of being a fairly scientifically based, you know, uh, secular society. But I think that the United States has always had, has been built on a much higher degree of religiosity. And once you have a melding pot of different religious and secular beliefs, um, then you, you know, with the secular people tending towards the more... Um, Democrat uh, uh, and, and urban and cosmopolitan um, uh, uh, c 
constituencies in America and then uh, the Republicans tending slightly to more the to more the religious perspectives, but with huge overlap, you know, the huge mm. overlaps on the Venn diagram. Well, what you have is uh, the, this debate in America. It's much more heated. In, in, in Europe and in Britain, we tend to be, I think, slightly more secular now. Um, and therefore, we leave these things up to national legislatures. Um, but in America, it's more, more visceral, more polarised. Uh, people just feel it, I think, generally more stronger, they're more passionate. Um, and, and in that sense, they're, they're perhaps uh, more in, in touch in a strange way with with where theology and, mm. and philosophy are bumping up against each other and where religion and secularism do. In, in many, many ways, America remains um, so much more rooted in in those radicals who left our shores three, four, five hundred years ago. Tim, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, who's Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim will be back. Um, to talk to me again in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.